travel if your eyes are open you recognize that you, you have privilege and i think that um i've always felt that you know i have been i've been dealt a good hand if you in a sense by having a you know a great upbringing and and you know, good education and so you know i want to be part you know sew that back if you like a bit and and just be part of uh, of empowering others um you know the, the lives the lives that people are born into can be so different but i will also say that actually the kids on the streets have have really educated me there's, there's so much sometimes people find this surprising but some of the greatest acts of compassion and kindness that i've ever seen in the world have been by street children toward other street children and so i do feel that um that there's sort of a formal education you can get in the world yeah but um but communities and and even particularly struggling communities have so much that we can we can learn from so i do feel indebted to the kids that i've worked with they, they've taught me a lot that's tom hewitt my guest today and this is the generation africa podcast i'm your host tim albert Generation Africa is a podcast dedicated to the game changers, the thought leaders, the social activists and the entrepreneurs who are driving growth and creativity across the African continent. Tom is a social activist who set up the charity Surfers Not Street Children. The charity uses surfing to help get children off the streets. We discuss the amazing work his charity are doing, his famous supporters including Prince Harry and the Pope, his early life as an anti-apartheid activist, the books he recommends and how surfing can help the rehabilitation process. Great. Well, thank you very much, Tom, for, for taking the time to talk to me today. I just, I guess, want to start at the beginning of your sort of African adventure, if you can call it that. It's, you know, 1990, uh, apartheid's coming to an end. You know, the Mozambique Civil War is still, still two, two years away from ending, and, and you, you sort of arrive as an 18-year-old. Could you talk us through a bit about that? Yeah, I came out to South Africa in, in 1990, and I was part of a an anti-apartheid fact-finding trip. I mean, I would say I was a tag-along, really. I mean, only 18. Um, and it was absolutely incredible um, moment in South Africa's history. So just an extraordinary time to to be in the country and be sort of hearing such stories. Um, and we went up into uh, Mozambique as well, to Maputo during the Civil War to meet with peacemakers there. So you can imagine for an 18-year-old, um, Hearing all these incredible and sometimes painful stories was, was quite overwhelming. And funnily enough, when I was in Maputo, I got introduced to street children for the first time, which I actually didn't even know existed. And uh, and that kind of changed the course of my life. Yeah, I can imagine. And I, I mean, what was it? I mean, you know, what is life like for a for a street child in, in Mozambique during a civil war? A lot of the kids um, that were on the streets in Maputo had obviously fled the uh, violent areas um, up and down the country. Um, so had been a part of or, or seen or witnessed um, serious violence. Um, you know, they were, they, they were fleeing from, from war. So um, there were a lot of street kids and life was obviously tough. But I had met this, um, this man called, who was actually a, 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 an Anglican bishop who was kind of looking after the kids, although he didn't have a home for them. They, they slept on the streets outside his house and he made sure that they were um, as best as he could looked after. They were fed, they had blankets. Um, and I was quite inspired by, by what he was doing. Um, but you, as you can imagine, for, for someone who'd grown up in the UK and <clears throat> hadn't been exposed to the issue of street children, I was actually shocked yeah. that children 
lived on the streets. And, um, and when I returned to South Africa shortly after, uh, everywhere I went, I was sort of then seeing street kids on the streets and thinking, ah, uh, so it really sort of opened my mind to the issue. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine it's, it's you know, hugely shocking. And I, I mean, obvious question, but what's, where were their parents? How did they end up on the street? In the Mozambican situation, um, it was some, many of them had lost their parents. And during the fighting. Others, yeah, during the fighting. So it was, it was a, you know, a lot of trauma, a lot of tragedy. Um, the streets themselves weren't perhaps as, as violent for the kids um, as, as, you know, say South African streets at that time, um, because in a war, um, you know, there hadn't been a culture of street life that had developed. I mean, they were like really refugees um, lining the streets. So it was, although it was a dangerous lifestyle, and of course the, the children there were, were vulnerable and you know, at risk of, of uh, physical and sexual violence, um, there wasn't yet really a culture of street life. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, you're, you're 18 uh, and you see this and what's the sort of tra transition towards, you know, setting up Surfers Not Street Children? How does that, how does that evolve? Did you go back to England after this trip or did you stay out in, in Africa? What, I went what? back to the UK and, and um, tried to uh, raise a bit of money to come out and I mean, I worked to, to uh, get some money behind me to come back out again. I wanted to get involved. Uh, I was quite aware of the fact that, you know, I was sort of a naive 18, 19 year old um who didn't have a particularly a lot to offer <laughs> um uh so i was i i really wanted to just come and chip in in some small way to the development of a new south africa and funnily enough when i came back to south africa um i knew i wanted to i knew i had an interest in this issue of street children so i started asking people that i was connected with so the local anc um hey what's happening with the with the street kids in this area yeah because i found myself in the eastern cape um and um and of course people were were compassionate to them but if you can imagine the context of the time the transforming of south africa 1992 like the big picture is happening so yeah. when when i asked you know what's happening about street kids people were like uh, i don't know um and it wasn't out of you know not being interested it was just there were so many big things going on um so i kind of um said to uh, the the friends that i had um in like the anc and uh, and and uh, in the um struggle movement i said well how about if i you know you know i just chip in on the on the street kids thing i i'd heard that there was a a program for street kids and i wanted to get to know them and they were like uh yeah you, know, you gotta remember i'm like an <laughs> insignificant you know <laughs> 18, 19 year old so i think maybe they were just humoring me you know i think some of them were thought, well at least you know that it'll keep him out of trouble yeah <laughs> so i ended up um funnily enough i ended up walking into duncan village township um in east london in south africa because i'd heard that and was, was that a, safe i mean i mean you say that tom as if it's just sort of you know an everyday thing you do but i mean townships in south africa are, are not sort of particularly safe places so I just I mean were you ever in any danger yeah well it wasn't safe at the time and and primarily because the area of Duncan village had been really volatile during apartheid yeah um, the, the regime had been brutal there'd been a massacre and so it really wasn't a safe place to be but obviously I was so naive that I just walked in and um, actually a couple of guys in the township 
um, befriended me on the way in and just said, oh, <laughs> you know, without alarming me, said, oh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll walk with you. <laughs> Basically, they were, they were bodyguards. Yeah. Um, and we found this um, project that was actually facing closure in the in the in among the shacks in in Duncan Village in a little uh, area called Dugash, and um, so I started volunteering there. Um, with it worked with kids from the streets, but also kids. It was right next to the municipal rubbish dump, and in those days yeah. in East London, there was a whole community, uh, you know, like you see in other places in the world, that were literally living and scavenging on the rubbish dumps for survival. So it was also for the kids from there. So my work with my early work uh, alongside those working with street children was very intertwined with uh, the communities from the rubbish dump as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think it's hard, you know, growing up privileged to imagine exactly how grim life can be for people and, and sort of growing up on a, on a rubbish dump must be horrific. But I mean, how did you sort of, how did you kind of evolve that sort of help to, to, to sort of bring in surfing? I mean, I know that's, that's, that's your love. So how, how did you sort of, how, how did that evolve, if you will? Yeah, that took some time because, I mean, although I was, uh, I'd been surfing since a kid, um, I, I kind of had these two passions that ran side by side. So I'd work with the street kids all day and I'd, early mornings I'd surf and, and I was, you know, really, really loved both. The, both things that I was involved in and um, I didn't actually for quite a long time even consider uh, that they could fuse yeah um, and later on I'd started an organization in uh, Durban called the Durban Street Team which later went on to become surfers not street children and I was actually surfing at the uh, at the new pier in Durban which is the premier spot at uh, in Durban and it was a small day and for those who know Durban um, you can actually walk to the end of the pier and chat to people who are sitting waiting for waves um, <laughs> when when what's called the bowls are working so the inside waves so I was just sitting it was a small day so we were kind of riding the bowls and one of the kids who was in the program came up to the pier and was like his name was Tula and he said Tom Tom I want to I want to surf now he was in our program so I knew he could swim because we'd been yeah. doing swimming so um, it was so calm that day and there were tiny little waves. So I said, okay, jump off the pier. And um, <laughs> he jumped off the pier. I put the leg rope around his leg and pushed him into a wave. And obviously I couldn't see him from behind the wave, but I could hear him hooting all the way <laughs> to the beach with sheer joy. And it was like a light bulb moment. It was like, oh man, surfing's brought me so much what we call stoke yeah. for most of my life. Why did I not think of it? And part of it was that I didn't want to sort of impose what I like onto the kids. I wanted to sort of see what they were into and support that. Um, but the kids just wanted to serve. And he went, he got out, ran up the pier, went in and did it like 10 times and yeah, had a wow. great day. And from that moment, I thought, well, let's fuse, let's bring in surfing alongside the, you know, soccer, art, drama, music, and the other things that we're doing. And I, I didn't realize at the time that it, the kids were just, absolutely love surfing and it would sort of take over as the identity of the organization that's an amazing story and i mean apart from fun and joy and, and and excitement what else does sort of what else does surfing give them i mean how does it help them surfing is intrinsically therapeutic in and of itself so that's incredible to start with so obviously surfing isn't the model surfing fits the model so we fuse yeah. surfing with mentorship and care, but it's, it is incredible at fit, fitting in the model. 
So it already has this therapy or therapeutic uh, content. So, you know, you're out in nature. Uh, it's incredible. You're in the ocean. It's healthy. The colors are incredible. The riding of a wave is, is somewhat addictive. And, uh, and all these things together is what surfers call stoke. Yeah. And um, we're fusing this stoke with, um, with the, the mentorship and care. And when you do that, it can actually be absolutely that model of fusing surfing um, with mentorship and care can be life transformative. And I think it's something that over the last 10 years, the surfing community has realized because historically surfing has been quite a selfish pursuit. Um, and when we first started in back in 1998, we were the only uh, surfing program in development that we knew of around the same time I, I discovered a not a program for street kids, but a, a program in uh, the favelas in Brazil that was doing the same thing. In fact, I went and visited them. And um, but we were the only ones. Uh, now, actually, it's, it's really great that the surf community has realized that actually the community has a responsibility and it has something special in surfing that can be part of models of, uh, of real transformation. Yeah, amazing. And so it's, it's part of the sort of transformation for these, for these um, street kids. What, what else do you do, you do for them? How, how else does the program work with them? We spoke about mentorship. Well, you... Yeah, absolutely. We have an array of programs. Our ultimate goal is to empower the kids in the program to, uh, towards becoming self-sustainable and independent adults. And also to recognize that at the bottom of the pile, having missed out on lots of education, they're going to need quite a bit of intervention um, in order to be empowered and also chances at things like jobs and uh you, you know they, they're going to need some help yeah and so what we've set up is a program that operates in durban which goes right from outreach so identifying kids on the streets or or kids that need we don't just work with street children we also work with kids that we uh, we say are at risk of street connectedness. So they may live with a parent, but yeah. the same street uh, issues are affecting them and they're very exposed to them. Um, so through the programs that we run, the idea is to enable the kids to get back into education, to, uh, to unlearn street life and to learn the nuances of uh, being more having more hope and being more successful in life so it's really about preparing them for being uh independent adults okay cool and i mean could you talk about some of the success stories some of the guys some of the guys and girls who've gone through the program where do they sort of end up what yeah what, what does life look like for them after yeah we've had lots of success and 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 in the same breath i'll say we've had lots of challenges we yeah. don't have a hundred percent success rate by any means it's you know if you could perhaps take away trauma and addiction out of the mix, it would be a lot easier. Um, so it is a challenging uh, work to be in, but many of the kids have been successful in their lives. Um, yeah, we've been able to bridge the gap for, for many. They've gone on to do all sorts of things uh, from uh, surf coaching, lifeguarding, coffee baristas, restauranters, um, all, all, all different walks of life. And what we've tried to do is develop a really good network in, in Durban of um of surfers and and friends um who have um businesses and have business contacts so we try and provide opportunities for the kids um that they can rather than having to go in and and so going cold and do a 
a job search and be at the bottom of the pile because of not maybe completing their education because of having missed out on too many years when they're on the streets. We're trying to give them a bit more access. Um, so, you know, we've had kids like um, one guy in Tando. Uh, he went on to become a professional surfer. That's an extraordinary story. Yeah. Um, but uh, he now, he, he's a pro, what's called a free surfer. So he's done his contests. He doesn't do that so much now. He's an incredible surfer, but he also now works full-time in a surf shop and that, that's his uh, career now. So he works in retail. Um, and for a kid who was, you know, on the street sniffing glue, uh, who'd lost his parents um, to disease, um, that's an incredible transformation to, to be stable and independent and uh, working in a surf shop. Um, you know, we, we've had kids go on to be, the, a really popular one is the coffee baristas actually. Is it? Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a, a popular one. And another girl in the program um, is a coffee barista at a local uh, coffee shop in Durban. She's been doing that for over four years, very stable, providing for her um, family. So, yeah, there are there, there are many, many stories um, that keep you um, kind of psyched about the work and excited. You know, seeing the kids transformation is is really sort of inspires you to want to carry on with this. You know, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, what what sort of numbers? Are we talking about, I mean, in South Africa and Mozambique, how many, do you have any idea of how many children are at risk and, and what those numbers look like? Well, that's a really tricky question, actually, because not really, no. There were, when it comes to street children specific, there were all sorts of crazy numbers banded around over the last 20 years. Um, but when, I mean, this is only uh, from our experience. It's not an official stat at all. But when we first started the work, there were probably around um, 500 to 1,000 full-time street children um, living on the streets. There are much, much less now, okay. much less. Um, so things have changed in South Africa for the better. Also, um, we've taken so many kids off the streets and there are a couple of other organizations as well. So together, we have dramatically reduced the number of kids on the streets. Um, and that's why, in a sense, that we realized that although we needed, we needed to keep the the pressure on with the work on the streets to ensure that any new arrival doesn't become part of street life culture. Um, we're really concerned about the kids that live particularly in these areas like the point in downtown Durban, um, because that is kind of like often street life under a roof. You have these crazy shelters, so-called shelters, um, these kind of 15 rand a night places that they might be living in with a parent who's really struggling and sometimes with an addiction as well. And essentially, um, those those shelters are, are, are kind of living street life. It's the same the same kids that mixing with the kids on the street. And so we realized that we couldn't just work with the kids on the street and not work with the kids in those shelters and not work with the kids who are, you know, living in difficult circumstances there. So we broadened our, our remit. Um, but that, that's the tricky thing. There aren't really official stats on, on the numbers. Okay, uh, understood. I mean, is it overwhelming? Do you ever feel sort of overwhelmed by the situation i mean i i you know i i'm amazed that how much you've managed to achieve and i just I, I, is, is it overwhelming to you i wouldn't say it's overwhelming the, the level of uh, problems that we're dealing with but i would say it's frustrating so um it's not overwhelming because it's so exciting when one kid you know achieves that that really carries you through the what could be the overwhelming moments but it's frustrating and that is because you know you can when you're dealing with trauma and addiction um those 
those don't if a child is suffering from from both of those or one of those that means that they can often be irrational so yeah. for example you can have a clear uh, route for a child out of their situation and to 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 the person helping it seems so rational to those around it seems so rational but because of their range of experiences um you know it could be that they just can't see it as the rational choice and so that's what is so frustrating that sometimes you know because of uh, those two addiction and trauma the child just because you can't you can only the child has to ultimately be empowered to make the decision themselves you can't make the decision for the child yeah. And sometimes you're saying, oh, man, you could, if you could just see all you've got to do. And of course, when we think all you've got to do, it's not all <laughs> you've got to do. It's really difficult. You're talking to someone who may have had horrific experiences with adults um, before. And so, you know, they don't trust anything that an adult's telling or they struggle very hard. So, yeah, it's not overwhelming, but certainly um, frustrating and addiction such a difficult um, um, and when you talk addiction I mean what are you seeing what are these kids addicted to the kids mostly uh, are addicted to drugs so um, they a lot of them will take will sniff glue okay uh, and that uh, we've had a lot of success with the glue and the hard drugs uh, because the bottom line is that if you want to be a good surfer as much as the old 70s stereotype of surfing and drugs uh, is, they, they really don't mix. Like it's really <laughs> awful. Drugs and surfing just doesn't do anything good for surfing. So the kids realize pretty quick because they don't glamorize drug taking. They feel a bit embarrassed by it. And it's survival drug taking on the streets. Um, they, they really, it's one of the first things that they want to get rid of. Um, so we found that the surfing is really good for that because they want to be good. Uh, yeah. And you know, surfing becomes their identity um, in terms of uh, sporting identity. So uh, actually, funnily enough, the hardest drug we work with is, and you'd be so surprised, is uh, weed. So really? uh, yeah, Dacha. Um, yeah. Because um, obviously, I'm not making any pronouncements on whether it's, whether it's bad, but it really does affect motivation. And so sometimes the, the child's left hard drugs and they've done this big transformation and then they've got a job, but because they, they're struggling to leave weed, they, they kind of don't make the interview or they don't turn up or a week later, you know, they, they smoked before. So we actually quite, we're quite serious about um, trying to have them uh, stop weed as well. And again, it's not a, a philosophical pronouncement. Um, it's just because they've been dealt such a bad card you know, in as much as they, they won't have necessarily the same education standard that other kids going for those jobs, that they just can't afford to have anything pulling them down. And, yeah. you know, they, they've got to be motivated. So that's, that's funnily enough, trickier than working with these, uh, you know, Wunga's a hard one, what they call Niope in, um, in uh, Johannesburg. Uh, we find that Wunga is... is uh, and what, what is that, sorry? What, what? That's a, um, a heroin-based... Um, drug mixed with all sorts of other things like rat poison and oh. uh, but it's the dregs of heroin and that's really hard to work with because uh, it's you know when you come down off that the pangs are so painful that you just want to get your next hit so you have to have a real re really work hard and break with that but we've had kids coming through uh, plenty of kids coming off Wonga and coming into the surf program so you know we, we joke about it but it, there's some truth to this 
that actually what we, we're doing is we're replacing negative addictions with a positive one. Um, you'd the be surprised being surfing. Yeah, exactly. And you'd be surprised at how, how close to the truth that is. Yeah. I mean, Tom, amazing. I mean, you grew up in Devon, is that right? And, and, and your dad was a, a priest. I mean, so quite a, quite a different childhood. I mean, do, do you just sometimes look at these kids and just think, God, you know, like how lucky and what a, what a sort of roll of the dice that I ended up in this position to be able to help them? I mean, how do you sort of reconcile the two very different childhoods? Yeah, my, my, um, my, my family moved around a bit when I was a kid. So actually my teen years were, were in Guildford, which is about as far away from, <laughs> uh, from, from Africa as you could possibly get. Um, and I think, you know, you, you recognize as you travel, if your eyes are open, you recognize that you, you have privilege. And I think that um, I've always felt that, you know, I have been, I've been dealt a good hand, if you, in a sense, by having a, you know, a great upbringing and, and you know, good education. And so, you know, I want to be part, you know, sew that back, if you like, a bit and, and just be part of, uh, of empowering others. Um, you know, the, the, lives, the lives that people are born into can be so different. But I will also say that actually the kids on the streets have, have really educated me. There's, there's so much, sometimes people find this surprising, but some of the greatest acts of compassion and kindness that I've ever seen in the world have been by street children toward other street children. And so I do feel that, um, that there's sort of a formal education you can get in the world, yeah. but, um, but communities and, and even particularly struggling communities have so much that we can, we can learn from. So I do feel indebted to the kids that I've worked with. They, they've taught me a lot. Cool. And I mean, something I'm really impressed by is that you sort of saw this problem and you've and, and, and come up with a solution that can help fix it. And I mean, that must have taken an awful lot of persistence. And, you know, you must have been knocked back an awful lot of times when you sort of went to speak to donors and, and people and said, you know, I've come up with this idea, sort of street kids and surfing. And how do you how do you keep persevering and how how, how do you get over those sort of negative those, ne you know, those knockbacks? There, you're right. There are plenty of those knockbacks all the time, actually. And, and it is it can be soul destroying. Um, but I mean, and it, the most important thing is that um, by no means is this a one person show. Um, I'm part of an incredible team. And, um, you know, our South Africa dire director, Sandy Lamkhadi, is just such an incredible inspiration. So I'm part of an inspiring team. Um, and, you know, we're constantly reminding each other um, why we do this and, and the kids' lives remind us of that. So I, I think as a person, I am, with everything I've done in life, I'm a bit like a dog with a bone. I mean, with surfing, whatever it is, I, I kind of just will do it, will do it. And that's, you know, one characteristic, I, I suppose, that I, I don't give up. Um, but, uh, you know, you just have to, you have to have some long-term vision. And um, yeah. and like I said, just be part of a of a team, and because I I'm often in the the public light in regards to the, to the organisation, I'm always at pains to say that the the local heroes that we have, like Sandy Lay, like Slindy Lay, our, our social worker, like the crew in Mozambique, they are like unsung heroes, and I, I try and make make it so they're not unsung actually, but they're <laughs> they're incredible people to be around, and so that really keeps me inspired. Great. And I mean, you've had some you've had some pretty high profile um, supporters of, of 
the organization. Could you talk about, about them a little bit, how you got in touch with them and how that sort of helped you get funding? If yeah, we've been, quite, we've been quite good at, at getting extraordinary people. Sometimes I say we haven't been quite good at getting sort of the ordinary support um, so, uh, because obviously, you know, the, it's always challenging to get the support to run the program. But well, I mean, yeah, we have had some incredible allies and continue to have. Um, so um, Pope Francis has been involved, his organization, uh, or other than the Catholic Church, called Scolas Ocorrentes, which he started before becoming Pope uh, and is still involved with. Um, has been a great ally with our, we've partnered with them on the Mozambique project, which has been fantastic. And of course, the other one that people um, know of uh, is having Prince Harry um, visit and, uh, and having his support and encouragement has been, um, has been absolutely invaluable. So, you know, obviously having a prince and then, you know, we had, we had the support of the prince and then we had the support of the king, Kelly Slater, the king of <laughs> the surf king, yeah. <laughs> The surf community has embraced us, actually, um, because I think we're, we're unusual in that because we're so long term with the kids. Kids can be in the program for like 10 years. Wow. And surfing is so at the core that although our goal is not to produce incredible surfers, it's, it's about, you know, it's different goals. The, a byproduct is that the kids are really good at surfing. So this has kind of lit up interest in the surfing community um, around the world. We had the... Uh, the seven-time uh, female world champion Stephanie Gilmore um, visit our program in uh, in Mozambique, which was incredibly encouraging, given that the um, our 18-year-old intern uh, is the first ever female surfer in Mozambique, first ever local really? female surfer. So you know, it was quite a moving moment when they got together, and Steph um, actually gave her one of her incredible surfboards which was just was, was a beautiful thing so yeah we've been really fortunate to have some some uh, really fantastic supporters uh, both high profile and some just incredible people who aren't high profile but have just been so supportive in what we do and we're really thankful to them now it's incredible I, I mean something like sort of a, a financial crisis like the you know 2008 financial crisis or covid how does that impact your your sort of fundraising and, and how do you how do you get around that? Well, the 2008 crisis was hideous for us. Um, in fact, it didn't hit us till 2010, because if you remember in South Africa, South Africa was hosting the, uh, the FIFA World Cup. Yeah. So it was a lot of interest. So in a lot of sectors, including the charity sector, we didn't feel anything. So we kind of falsely thought we were a bit protected and then everything fell away after the FIFA World Cup and we overnight we lost between a quarter and half of our, our funding. So we almost didn't survive um, at that time. But um, obviously COVID presents um, challenges, but actually funnily enough, what we learned from the recession of 2008, 2009, and when it hit us a, bit, a few years later, has actually stood us in, in, um, in good stead. Um, yes, we have lost money during um, the COVID-19 period, particularly when from supporters of ours whose, um, whose support comes through profit um, on sales. Um, so we've had a couple of uh, key donors in the US have, have to pause their funding for a while. So we've just had to counterbalance um, that with, um, with a, a COVID-19 appeal online um, on our Instagram page. Um, and we, we've just had to prepare ourselves best we can um, for that. And, and also look at things like... Um, developing what I call an army of month, small monthly givers. Yeah. That was a decision after the, the crisis of um, 
yeah, 10 years ago or so, that we realized that um, if you have a, a large army of small givers, um, you know, one or two people pull out, it's not going to sink the ship. But if you're reliant on a couple of big donations and someone pulls out, that's going to be problematic. So we're, we're, we're trying our best to, to weather the storm. Um, you know, we've got this through, throughout the COVID time, we've, we've actually been, um, we've got a, a, an emergency response plan that staff have been absolutely fantastic running. And we've made a commitment to them that, you know, uh, we're going to work tirelessly to ensure that the staff continue to get paid and they have what they need to run these programs. So, uh, so yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. And I guess it's, you know, it's times like these really when, when you're most needed, you know, I mean, South Africa's in a pretty, pretty grim place at the moment, I think. So, so there probably are going to be more street children and more need, more need for your, your sort of offering. Quite possibly. And yes, I do think that now um, when there is a crisis, you know, the, those at the bottom of the pile are always um, badly affected. So, um, for example, um, when the lockdown happened, the first step of our five point plan, emergency response plan, was to ensure that every child in our program was in a safe place during lockdown. And that is easier said than done. And, and the, our staff went, you know, worked so hard to in the run up to lockdown. And how many kids in your yeah. how, how many kids in your program at the moment? We have about 120 kids in the program in oh, South wow. Africa okay. uh, and about uh, 45 in uh, in Mozambique. And um, Mozambique's been a little bit different. Uh, and, the, and the kids we work with are from slightly different backgrounds, um, much need, but they, they tend to come from a home environment so they can be monitored um, within their home environment. But it was a, but in, in Durban, man, that was that was hard to to make sure that everybody had uh, a safe environment to be in. And our residential facility, the Surf House, has been, a, has been used for uh, kids that are struggling. They just simply don't have a safe place or there's a threat of uh, physical or sexual violence. Um, so uh, fortunately, we do have that, um, the Surf House for an emergency um, place for kids. But yeah, it was re really difficult. And then you know, the next thing is making sure that um, the kids have nutrition because kids that you're still working with that haven't come off the streets yet would maybe uh, eat through begging. I mean, obviously we have a nutrition program, but in between that they would they would beg, and if that's taken away, you know, how do they survive? So we've ramped up our our nutrition program. So yeah, ironically, the time that's the toughest um, financially uh, is you know when you're working with you know kids that are actually at the bottom of the pile uh, becomes the time you really need to to step up the game yeah and i mean i think you know the lockdown in south africa has been one of the one of the most severe in the world hasn't it so you can just you yeah think for these guys who are surviving on begging or surviving yeah. on daily income it's it's tough absolutely yeah um tom i just want to talk about your mbe a bit and and how that sort of came about and and you know what that means to you and how that sort of helped you in your work yeah, no, the MBE, um, I'm very grateful for the MBE, actually, because um, it's really been a, a door opener. Uh, it's been, been a, a great sort of enabler. Um, on, a, on a personal level, you know, I'm, I'm very aware that I'm in, a, I'm in a big team of fantastic people. And so, you know, I take, I mean, obviously, I'm the only Brit in the, in the group. They're all local South Africans. So, you know, I, I, I think of the MBE as really an endorsement of the whole organization and, and the, the team that I work with. But it also gives me an ability to, to go out there and use that platform 
to uh, point towards the kids we work with and, and the incredible staff that we have. So it, it's been, um, yeah, I'm very grateful for that because it does give me a bit more access and ability to go out there and make it work for the kids we serve. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And I mean, you spoke a bit about your, you know, your COVID appeal online and you spoke about getting an army of sort of small funders each month. How, how can people help and, and, and where would you sort of send them to, to help? Yeah, um, the best way uh, for, for supporting us, and thanks for that, is, um, is through our website, which is surfnotstreets.org. And there's the options for giving um, in uh, uh, either monthly, which is fantastic for us because uh, then we kind of know what's coming in. That can be really empowering for us. Or once-off donations, we are gladly received as well. Um, we, um, we also have a, a US partner called the Sports Creative. Um, and there's details for this on our website, um, which uh, for those needing to give in uh, the US to a US organization for tax reasons, um, that's uh, also available. And then we also have um, through our link in bio on Instagram, um, we have a, a COVID-19 appeal, uh, which is a GoFundMe page. So, um, and actually if you, the best way to keep in touch with us on a daily basis as to what's going on and to know what we're up to is through our Instagram page, which is simply surfers, not street children. Cool. Yeah, I'll put all that in the in the links uh, below. Um, and you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, I think it's a competitive. Mar- I mean, it sounds awful to call it a market, but it's it's a competitive market out there in terms of people giving money to organisations. I mean, what do you do differently, and why? I mean, it's horrible to say, like you know, I don't want you to say they should take money from somewhere else. But I, could you just talk about like a bit about how for someone who's never been to South Africa or never been to Mozambique, never seen street children what you sort of do differently and and what yeah what your charity does differently basically yeah look there's there's many many amazing charities that we're also inspired by so but what i can say is that what we do is that firstly we we don't stray from mandate we stick to our mandate our mandate is to serve and empower street children and children living at, at risk of street connectedness it's what we've done since day one um, and we, 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 we hug that mandate, if you like. Um, and secondly, and maybe what sets us apart a little bit is that we, we are all about the, uh, it's relational work. It's, it's, it's very deep. The social workers are, are if you really want to empower kids to transform their lives, the psychoso- psychosocial care is, is really important. So you can even tell from looking at our, our like our feeds and stuff that, the relationship that we have with the children that our social workers have is really special. It's a type, it's a relationship that you can almost see immediately is not a new relationship. This has been, yeah. you know, many of them have been in the program for, for years and years and years. And so uh, we also, you know, even when they're independent, we're still there almost like a parent in a sense to ensure that, you know, when they hit those challenges in life, um, we're able to help and advise and support. So it's that level of relationship um, that I think sets us apart in in um, in some way. Brilliant. Yeah. No, it's 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 an incredibly inspiring organisation. Uh, you know, ha- having sort of you know been in Africa, living in Africa, seeing the sort of poverty and seeing the need, it's it's great. I, the thing I like about it is that it's also you know it gives 
kids something fun to do as well you know i mean as much as as much as you've got to remember that they need help and that they might have to get over addiction i just love the idea that they're sort of going out in the surf and having fun um yeah and that's, you know, that, we say that to our staff as well fun first yeah you know they're, they're kids they have a right to fun and uh the other thing i think that sets us apart is that we are we're really we've kind of given the the kids who've come through the program the sort of the sense of responsibility that when they're doing okay they can give back and inspire others so and do they do that do you, do you get kids coming back to sort of help and all the time so you tend to find that kids like Ntando, who is the pro surfer and um he's like a local hero and and another guy c clay and andy lay and lucky these guys and, and the girls they they come back to inspire so they kind of come around and hang out at the project and and this is amazing uh, because the other kids can then see they know the stories they're inspired by these other youngsters who who were where they are now and yeah. they can see that trajectory it's really important so from 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 day one we've tried to include former street children in our strategy development um you know even in uh you know even on the board of the organization you know every we've we've got our entire water safety team which are fully qualified good lifeguards um three of them are all ex street children so wow. we really we, we we had this idea that we wanted to fuse um really high quality professional social working and care with uh the insight and the inspiration of transformed former street children and that probably has that's maybe been the single most um uh, aspect of what sets us apart yeah i can imagine i mean if you if you're sort of a drug addicted street child who's being told that surfing can give them a new life it, it's probably a lot easier to believe when you see someone who's gone through the program and how their life has sort of evolved and 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 what it's brought them exactly yes it's incredibly inspiring for the children and they look up to these uh to these ex street kids which i and, it, and it, the other thing is what's really amazed me which i love is that we're really good friends with the the other kids on the beach um who who aren't coming from those uh underprivileged backgrounds and and the white kids and a lot of them these young white surfers are also looking up to these ex street kids who are now great surfers and doing incredible things in their lives which i think is uh it's really beautiful to see that the relationship between the the privileged surfers and the kids in our program and they're they're becoming good friends you know that's just a positive thing yeah i can imagine and i mean how does that sort of racial divide play out now in south africa i mean you know when when you first arrived there was sort of still apartheid apartheid's been gone we're now sort of the born free generation but are you still seeing that are you still seeing any is that part of it for the street children the prejudice and the the racial sort of aspect of it or is that sort of is that going now it was really difficult at first when we started with the first group of street kids that were surfing at the new pier um we we got a lot of kickback from um the surfers now i'm quick to say that we also got a lot of support from surfers now bear in mind that it was with a with a few exceptions it was predominantly almost exclusively white the surfing yeah. at that stage there were a handful of black surfers but we got really negative um publicity we got threats you know we got people using the k word at the kids in the lineup and people being aggressive to me threatening to punch me for bringing these kids you know to the new pier um that doesn't happen now yeah. <laughs> that was that was that was the 90s 
Um, and, which is bizarre, uh, which is really, I mean, you sort of think surfing's counterculture. You kind of think that it would, it's a rebellion, you know, and you think those yeah. sort of people wouldn't, wouldn't be like that. It's, yeah. Well, we even got one guy um, who, who is like the enforcer. So, so what I'm saying is that there were those people, but there were always the, alongside that, there were always the people who were saying, Hey, keep, keep going. This is great. We love it. Yeah. You know, um, and one day I was under pressure myself in the lineup and, and, uh, and uh, one of the, there used to be this guy, this enforcer. He was a tough guy, great surfer, actually a really nice guy, but the enforcer <laughs> of the his name was Shane Thorne. And he, the one day, I don't even know if he remembers this, but the one day he just said, Hey, Tom says, just keep doing what you're doing. This is good. Says, ignore them, you know, and, uh, and that encouragement was, was, was absolutely fantastic. Plus, I'm not a fighter, so it's good to know that someone had <laughs> <in> the back. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So now, nowadays, nowadays it's, it's so different. Um, the kids are really accepted and cherished uh, within the beachfront community, between, within the surf community. Um, so it's really nice to see that the new pier has transitioned from being a place that was, you know, was very difficult for surfers of color. And actually, we've had a lot of surfers of color who aren't part of our program, who've come and said, hey, thanks, you guys really made it a lot easier for us to surf. It was really hard in the 90s, um, but the street kids really opened it up for us. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's fair to say, and a lot of people acknowledge this, that, that the, our projects changed the racial demographics of surfing in Durban. That's amazing, yeah. I mean, as if it's not hard enough for, for a street child anyway to get out on the waves and learn to surf, to then be sort of abused by people much bigger than them probably and so, yeah. yeah yeah so tom a bit about you what what do you do aside from surfing to relax <laughs> you know i mean it's that uh, really just family stuff I, I i have a a lovely wife and, and three boys um my wife's south african um she's from the eastern cape yeah and uh, my boys grew up surfing in the bowls of durban and uh they're over in the uk at the moment we're um I, i'm back and forth um, yeah, my three boys, my eldest is really into skateboarding. My, the middle one is a contest surfer. He's just lives for surfing. I got a little seven year old as well who, uh, yeah, we don't know if he'll be into that or whatever. He's super cool. So <laughs> mostly family stuff, to be honest. And, uh, you know, I like, I obviously got, trying to support the program means quite a bit of travel. Yeah. Um, I try and leverage, um, why I spend time in the uk as well and, and in the us as i i try and leverage the support bases we have there and encourage people to get involved it's something that i can do to contribute to the work um so um it's nice to actually have a bit of time just to to be with the family i can imagine and if there was a book you had to recommend sort of either on you know for people to understand street children i mean there might there might not be a book i don't know or, or africa i mean is there is there anything you could sort of recommend people to read uh, that's a great question, and there are loads, but I think it, if I point it to the work we've done, there are two books that have been seminal um, in, in helping us develop a philosophy around empowering street children. And interestingly, um, the one of them comes out of the struggle against apartheid, and that is um, the writings of Steve Biko, so I write yeah. my life, um, because street children are often seen as the um, sort of the victim that sorry they're seen as the architects of their own misery in other words the kids that didn't want discipline the naughty kids they're seen as an embarrassment to society 
uh, often. And we realized that actually street children are an oppressed group. And when we started working with them, we realized that they saw themselves as the rubbish of society as well. And kind of almost yeah. thought that their lot in life was, was their own doing. And so we realized that just as Vico was calling for um, during the apartheid era for you know, black people to re-envision themselves as full human beings so that they could lead this struggle, we realized that we needed to to work with the kids on that level to re-envision themselves as full human beings. So that and then a very connected book from, uh, from Brazil is uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. Okay. And those two books together, and they're very similar actually, are, are really what we've based our philosophy on in terms of how we've, we've really tried to, to have a process in our organization that conscientizes street children. So in other words, um, enables them to see that they're not the architects of their misery, that there was structural oppression and very real things that caused them to become street children and that actually they have the worth of any human being and, and therefore, you know, um, there's hope. Yeah, I mean, that must be so incredibly hard. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that these, these people that are oppressed, like they're, they're taught to believe that they're the reason they're oppressed. You know, it, it comes down to them and actually it doesn't. It comes down to so many sort of different society you know societal reasons um so i think that's yeah it's incredibly poignant cool thank you tom thanks so much i mean that's it, it's an awesome organization and uh it was really really great to chat to you oh well, thanks thanks for your encouragement i appreciate that and thanks for the opportunity too thanks for joining me today if you liked the episode please do hit subscribe and leave a review for more information on tom and his charity see the show notes below Thanks again for joining me and until next time, bye.